You've probably heard this sound before. Many of us know that familiar chime. It's the sound you hear when someone messages you inside a channel on Slack, the business world's leading communications platform. It's a sound that has become synonymous with the company, which as a matter of fact, was never supposed to be the platform it has become. Cal Henderson, the co-founder and CTO of Slack, will tell you that the platform that has helped transform the way distributed workforces operate was actually originally designed as a simple tool his team used to work on a game they hoped to launch. And when that video game failed to take off and the team was looking for a way to salvage all of the work they did, they saw a light at the end of the tunnel. We constantly convinced ourselves that the next thing we did was just going to bend the curve enough for it to be a successful business and be financially viable. But we realized at the end of those four years that it was never going to turn into the business that we thought we could build and that we had invested in. And so we shut that down and we're trying to figure out what we wanted to do next. We knew we wanted to keep working together. And we realized that the way we had been collaborating and working together while working on this game, the set of tools that we built, we realized we always wanted to keep working together in that way. We wanted to use a set of tools like that. And if we did, maybe other small development companies like us would. And so we turned that into the product and that became Slack. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Cal discusses Slack's journey. He dives into its initial struggle as a video game developer, and he details the pivot they made to turn it into one of the premier platforms for distributed workforces around the world. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a superstar, a tech superstar. I feel like you're a superstar. Are you called a tech superstar? Are you famous in the tech community? I don't know. I don't think tech people are really famous. Not really. Not really famous. Well, I feel like you are. We have with us Cal Henderson, the CTO and co-founder of a little messaging app. You might have heard of it. Businesses use it. It's called Slack. Slack? Slack. Of course. Who doesn't know what Slack is? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. I want to dive right in because I actually have a unique experience with Slack. So I want to start there. In 2014, it was the first time I was entering the remote development workforce. I was working in a software company, but me and a team of guys, we were trying to build our own app. And I remember we were trying to choose between chat tools at the time. Chat was just emerging. It wasn't really a thing at the enterprise level. Not yet. HipChat was one option. Slack was the other. Uh, This was all around 2014. I believe Slack had just launched general availability earlier in the year, but you guys were kind of coming off of a weird place. You, uh, you kind of Slack was born from you know a, a failure. Is it okay to call it a failure? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. It, um, it's definitely a definitely a failure. So, want me to kind of re- rewind a little bit to give it some context? So, yeah, starting in what 2002, my co-founder Stuart started building this online game. So, 2002 is very early for online games. So it was kind of before the the rise of like the, the MMO or playing games with other people across the internet. And this project was called Game Never Ending, which is a poor name because it did end uh, shortly afterwards. But it was really interesting from kind of like a social interaction point of view and a technology point of view. And, I, you know, it ran in the browser. You didn't have to download anything. You could just start playing 
which seems really obvious now, but back then that was a that was a really weird idea. And I was so excited by the the game and the technology and the approach that I really just harassed him into giving me a job over the course of a year. <laughs> and I joined the company, which is like a five person company, at the end of 2003. But it was a terrible time to be making online video games because that's not really a real category. They were based in Canada. It was like post WorldCom, Enron, global financial collapse. It was a terrible time to be doing a startup. And so they'd run out of money. And so I had this idea for building something on the side, which would provide enough revenue for us to be able to work on the game. And that side project was Flickr, the photo website. And the idea was we'd work on it for a few months, and then it would be a kind of steady income stream on the side to be able to fund the game development. But a couple of months into Flickr, we realized that we had kind of like a hit on our hands and that we should pause development on the game and just drive on Flickr kind of as hard as we could and see where we could take it. And about a year after that, we sold Flickr to Yahoo and moved down to the US as a result um, and worked on Flickr for quite a few years. Then a little after four years after the acquisition, we wanted to get back and try and make a game again. So, you know, we'd failed the first time, but really the world was against us. We had no money. It wasn't the right time from a technology point of view. The, necessarily the player base wasn't there. And so we tried, we tried again. Second time around, we made a game this time called Glitch. And we worked on that for four years and spent a whole bunch of investor money. And ultimately, uh, it turned out to be a failure. And I think it was, it was a, a failure in that worst kind of space where it wasn't a success, but it also wasn't like a disaster. So we, we spent four years in that kind of in-between space of having something that was kind of working. And we constantly convinced ourselves that like, the next thing we did was just going to bend the curve enough for it to be a successful business and make finan- you know, be financially viable. But we realized at the end of those four years that it was never going to turn into the business that we, we thought we could build and that we had invested in. And so we shut that down and we're trying to figure out what we wanted to do next. We knew we wanted to keep working together. And we realized that the way we had been collaborating and working together while working on this game, the set of tools that we'd built, we realized we always wanted to keep working together in that way. We wanted to use a set of tools like that. And if we did, maybe other small development companies like us would. And so we turned that into the product and that became Slack. So this is 2014. You admittedly, you actually didn't even know HipChat was a competitor. Uh, no, I don't think we were aware of HipChat as a product. <laughs> we were aware of Campfire, which... Um, was kind of like a precursor to, to both. Yeah, the Basecamp product. Yeah, exactly. It was, uh, you know, back when, back when they were called 37 Signals and had a whole bunch of different products. Campfire wasn't terribly popular. It was, you know, didn't have a very big user base, but um, was kind of the first, first maybe transition of trying to bring IRC, Internet Relay Chat, into kind of a, a web-based kind of interface for normal people to use. Because I'd used IRC pretty extensively back in the 90s, but it hasn't really evolved since. And so it wasn't hugely popular and was really difficult to start using. And I think that's, that's where a lot of the ideas for, for Slack came from, was taking a lot of the models that exist, have existed in IRC for a long time and making them accessible to, to people who weren't engineers. So I can go back to that time. The developers on our team really chose Slack. The, one of the primary reasons was the ability to share code. And so now that you're revealing it was a developer-centric tool to begin with, our developers just naturally, inc- they were more naturally inclined to choose that pathway because they could say they could copy and paste code, update it for each other, and not worry about you know weird formatting signals or weird s- formatting symbols getting into their code. So they liked that part. And so that's how we chose to use Slack. Um, and I didn't know, like looking back on that, was that a purposeful strategy? Like, did you know, like, hey, th- if we go developer centric, we'll grow our business fastest? 
or what did you see was I guess taking off first? Was it developer side or was it remote communication side? I'm trying to figure out what what started getting the fire going where you're like, wow, we we got something now. I think like maybe gives us too much credit at the time and that we really just were targeting companies and organizations like us. That is small teams because at, at kind of peak building the second game, we were about 50 people. So it was small teams working on technical projects. So, you know, engineers, but also engineering adjacent. For us with the game, that was, you know, artists and animators and sound design and level design. And we wanted to make it more accessible to than you know, like using IRC on the command line, but we, we were still thinking about technical development teams. And that was our kind of initial vision. I think we, we realized pretty quickly that the problems we were solving were far more broadly applicable than just developer teams. But certainly when we first built the product, it was development teams of which, you know, there's a huge number. We're, you know, more than a decade past the software is eating the world essay. It's like every company at scale is a software company of some kind, you know, increasingly more and more organizations do software development. So that was, that was our initial vision. But then we realized that, you know, the problems of kind of communication and group communication are just increasingly applicable to every kind of knowledge worker in every kind of industry. I remember that that time period, so now it's 20, 2014, moving into 2015, the application that we developed, it was success in that the project was a success, but unfortunately it was a failure. At the same time, the SaaS company I was working at, Slack was starting to infiltrate into our company. Uh, we started noticing the developers were using it. You know, interestingly, Slack is now considered one of the staples or like the role model, like the uh, type of company that can help enable remote workforce. But now when I look back on that moment in time, it was almost as if our developer teams were already a remote workforce because they weren't really, if I think about it, they weren't really having meetings. They were, they weren't, there was not nearly as much water cooler talk. I was on the sales side. So, you know, there was a lot of water cooler talk, people hanging out near the uh, common areas, talking about deals and stuff like that. But developers... I noticed that they were very focused on, especially if they were, let's say, deep in a problem. They kind of already were living on their own island and all this work was flowing through Slack. And I remember seeing that starting to happen. I was like, huh, I didn't foresee that it was going to become the ultimate remote workforce enabler. But what did you start seeing? Because you're on the technical side. You're obviously starting to see more things getting checked in, more requests for integrations coming in. You're probably seeing all these dev tools that people are like, I want to install this into my Slack. What was it, I guess, that started that groundswell for you to say like, wow, we're becoming the hub of work? Yeah, I think the remote work aspect is really interesting because when we, even when we started as an organization building Slack, we were um, distributed between three different cities. We're in San Francisco, New York, and, and Vancouver in Canada. And so we were always distributed, but not, not remote as an organization. And I think you know, part of the design of Slack and the original intention was that want to make it feel the same working with somebody who's, you know, hundreds of miles away as it is with somebody sitting next to you, you know, and I think I'd had that experience, you know, in the prior decade with instant messenger with like AIM and Yahoo Messenger and MSN of, uh, you know, that's how I communicate with my colleagues, whether they're one desk over or if they're in a different building. And, you know, the, the integration of tools piece, I think has been, there are two core concepts at the heart of Slack that have been there kind of from the initial vision all the way through to today. The first is, is channels, super simple concept. And that's just move from kind of individual first, individual addressing of messages to doing it by topic or project or team. And the second one is the idea of bringing all your tools together. So for us initially, that was how do we get, when we're working on games, how do we get like our code tools integrated? So when you do a check-in, when you do a build, when you do a deploy, get all of those flowing into a channel. And from there, we started spidering out to all of the different tools we use. So whether that's on the sales side or the marketing side or the finance side, you know, being a, if you like, a single pane of glass to bring together 
a bunch of information and then later not just bringing together information but um bringing together kind of decisions and approvals so you know uh these days i don't go to concur to approve it in the expense report that just happens in slack you know and i don't uh, go to google docs to see the comments on on a doc i've made that just happens in slack and so that kind of integrating all of the tools aspect has been there from the beginning now that's super valuable even when you're in an office with you know working alongside a bunch of other people but i think that's become especially important in a you know in a remote environment because it is just it has for many organizations and especially us become the headquarters for a company now it's the stand in for when that used to be a physical building now it's slack so on the technical side so I'm trying to picture this because Slack is, is widely known as one of the fastest growth companies. Uh, when you guys launched, you guys grew very, very fast uh, once this came out. So what was that like for you as the CTO? You're constantly developing technology. You're assigning engineers because the requirements and requests of features have to be coming at you at an unmanageable rate. <laughs> like I'm imagining at this point, right? Like it's unmanageable. Every like you said, you didn't hadn't heard of HipChat. I'm sure half the feature requests were like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> like people are saying, I want to integrate this. I want to integrate that. How did you think about building a team that supported all these requests? Because you're right, the vision is make Slack the center of work. Obviously, is a strategy that played out, but you all, it requires quite a bit of a breadth of engineering skill, let's say, because I'm sure some of these products didn't have like refined APIs. Like it was just like, I don't know how to integrate these things. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I think our our approach with the what we call the Slack platform integrating with these other tools has changed over time as well. And that's really because of the how these other software vendors, how the ISVs like regard us as a company. So to begin with, it was anything that we want to integrate with Slack, we're going to have to go build that. And over time it became, you know, as Slack got more popular, if you're a smaller company, then you'll build that integration with Slack because it's valuable for you to go do that. So we knew or we hoped that that would be the shift over time. So it was really important for us to be able to build the platform in such a way that you're a third party, you're building a piece of SaaS. It's easy for you to go integrate that with Slack, especially easy you know, for you to get information into Slack, which is the, I think the, you know, the first version of any useful integration is getting notifications, getting that kind of information flow. And so, yeah, initially we concentrated on, right at the beginning, concentrated on dev tools because you know, we, that was the audience we understood the best. And we integrated with all the tools that we used first and then all the kind of popular tools that we weren't necessarily using. But pretty much from the beginning, before we even did our kind of alpha launch, we spent a huge amount of time talking to customers or potential customers. You know, our very first alpha users were like friends companies that we uh, would go into, you know, usually in, in San Francisco, that we would go visit and spend time talking about how they're working, the problems that they're having and convince them to use Slack. So there was a lot of, you know, kind of begging and borrowing to get people to just give it a try. And especially we'd come off the back of a, you know, failed game project. And we were saying, sure, the last thing didn't work, but this thing's going to work for sure. Also, your whole team needs to use it and change how you communicate. So <laughs> give it a try. And, you know, that's just a difficult proposition. And so that, that took us a while to get, you know, our first few testers. But we learned so much from the, from the first few people that, that tested the product as we started to get you know, get real world feedback and see how they're using it in real life. For the first probably couple of years of Slack as a product, it always worked best for a company kind of exactly the same size and shape as ours because we were, you know, we were building it for ourselves. And I think that was definitely the right approach for the first couple of years because we understood the problem domain really well. We understood what we were trying to solve. But as kind of our customer base grew, especially as it grew more diverse, you know, like uh, it wasn't just tech startups. It was 
very large companies, you know, whether they're on the tech side, like IBM or Amazon, or they're on, you know, financial services, like TD Ameritrade, Amex, or like retail companies, you know, Target, um, very different sets of challenges and also very different scales of organization. We have spent a huge amount of time talking to and listening, listening to our customers and trying to understand the, you know, the challenges they're having, the problems they're trying to solve. I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that the most kind of important resource for product development um, in the last decade has been Twitter. And the reason for that is because in the kind of pre-Twitter era, if you used some product and you were annoyed about something, maybe you might tell your friends and that's as far as it would go. Because like the burden of contacting that company to complain about something minor is just super high. Mm -hmm. But in the era of Twitter, if you're slightly annoyed about something, you get on Twitter and you tweet about it. And so there's this huge um, kind of river of free customer feedback of people kind of in the moment, not like so angered that they would write in, you know, in the old days, but um, annoyed enough that they will tweet about it. And you get so much great customer feedback that way. It's definitely a whole bunch of work to kind of aggregate that and filter it because, you know, there's, uh, there's nothing is so good that somebody won't complain about it. But aggregating that, understanding the trends, understanding what people are really getting stuck on. And sometimes that's the way something's built or bugs. And then sometimes it's you're not solving a challenge, you know, problem that they have. So gathering, gathering that feedback, and we still do that today, and kind of understanding what the biggest pain points are and then concentrating on those, I think has been super valuable for us. So in the beginning, you said you were developer-centric. Now you're analyzing data. What's it take now, I guess, to tilt the, tilt the needle for, for Slack to be like, we're going to prioritize this? I mean, does it, is it like a math formula of how many customers it's going to involve? It's, what is it that makes someone say, you say, okay, we have to work on or focus on building this partnership or integration or whatever it might be? Yeah, I think on the, on the kind of partnership side, it's a, it's a mix of kind of, I mean, data, data is a big part of it, right? Like how, how widely is this tool used amongst our current customers? How much do we hear about it? You know, is this, is this tool really growing in the wild? Should we be integrating with it? Do we have to do this versus work with that company to go integrate it with Slack? And today we're integrated with like 2,300 apps out of the box, you know, thousands of SaaS apps. Yeah, insane. And, you know, but still for us, a lot of our concentration is on the largest ones, making sure you have the best possible, uh, you know, interactions if you're using G Suite or O365 or Salesforce or ServiceNow, you know, the like the, the much more widely available apps. And I think that, you know, part investment there and big part of investment in the kind of capabilities and experience of the platform so that third-party vendors can build really great integrations and experiences on Slack. So when it comes to the technical chops, I guess, for yourself, you're now, you know, you had talked about when you met Stuart before, it was like you wanted to be part of the game company, right? Yep. Now here you are, you're overseeing the fastest growing chat platform out there, right? And people are constantly, there's more data pushing through your system than ever before. Did you struggle with keeping up with what would needed to be built to, in order to support that? How did you, I guess, because right, like you've never built a tool that can handle, you know, millions of concurrent messages that need real-time alerts and triage prioritization. Does it get a notification? Does it not get a notification? Right? Yeah. I'm assuming this is a new experience for you. So how did you plug through? What were some of your strategies you used to plug through to solve this problem, which you had up to this point not solved yet? Yeah. And it- I mean, it was a new experience for us, but also like a new experience in the world because nobody had built yeah. a, you know, kind of that scale of messaging system, especially in the kind of group channel based, you know, the, the equivalent at the time would have been SMS, right? Which is a giant platform, but it's all one-to-one. So it has very different characteristics, but a whole bunch of interesting design patterns too. And I think for, you know, for us, that was definitely a challenge for the first few years, 
because when we started out building the product, we had a very different kind of vision of where it would go and a kind of a sm- smaller ambitions in a bunch of ways. Um, and we thought it would be for small teams. We never thought it would grow to the scale it's at today. And so we architected a bunch of the, we made a bunch of early assumptions. We're already kind of two key early assumptions that turned out to be wrong that were, became kind of architectural challenges for us later. One of those was that individual customers wouldn't be very big. And I think in the original pitch deck, when we were switching to building Slack, we said five to 50 or maybe five to 100 people. And so we made some decisions assuming, you know, 100 people's a lot, maybe 1,000. And today we have customers with millions of users in a Slack instance. And so there were some architectural challenges <laughs> over the intervening years when we had to, had to battle that. The other thing was when we first built the product, um, it was just for internal communication within a team. And that's how it stayed for, for a few years. But more recently, we've added a set of features called Slack Connect that let you use Slack between organizations as well. When you're working you know, with partners, vendors, your supply chain, when you're doing a special project, and we're seeing explosive use there, but that kind of breaks the conceptual model of data is you know, kind of organized by customers and doesn't touch each other. And so that, that you know, turns Slack from a whole bunch, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of individual Slack instances to one global Slack you know, kind of network with, with permissions between them, which was a, you know, a different, a change in the conceptual model that required a lot of architectural changes. And all this time, like Slack has to be available and send messages every second of the day. You know, we send just on a kind of regular weekday, we're sending millions of messages a second and every one of those has to be delivered. <laughs> yeah, it's bananas. I think the beauty in the product is its simplicity, right? But I saw this like flow. Ch- I think you've probably seen this flowchart. People use it all the time to say like, you think you can build a tool like Slack and it's just, just it's like a flowchart of do you send a yes or no notification? And there's like, you know, it's like a hundred decision tree boxes. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with that flowchart. That was made by one of our kind of early principal engineers who uh, who was just trying to document internally how how all the different systems fit together and all the different preferences. And I think it's gotten more complex since then. Yeah, because now you introduced, like you said, like the cross teams and workspaces. So like as you were building this product, did you even see that as like? Because you just said, like, you had not flow charted it out. You had built all these decision trees into your product, and then someone flow charted it out for you. Like, oh my goodness, like, we've, we've, we've built a monster. <laughs> I, you know, I think at least some of that design was intentional because on kind of each individual thing we might have added. So, you know, around notifications, it's you have different notification settings for desktop or mobile or different kinds of channels or when you're mentioned versus just when there's something written in a channel, what time of day it is based on do not disturb, whether, you know, somebody wanted to override your do not disturb in an emergency. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of different features that went into it. And I think we were certainly kind of early on in the product design, we really focused on really, it's, it's a bit of a crutch to always just add preferences for things because on the whole, most people don't change their preferences. So you better just actually pick really good defaults. You know, that's a good part of, part of good product design. On the other hand, the software products that end up with the most preferences tend to be ones around notifications because people have a very particular idea of what they want. And especially if you're you know, using Slack for many hours a day and it's like the way you communicate with the rest of your organization, you want it to be just how you want it. And so that balance, while we try to avoid preferences in nearly all other things, I think um, notifications preferences is a kind of a rich area for the majority of users won't change their preferences. We need to make it feel exactly how you'd expect. You know, you don't want to miss messages, but at the same time, you don't want to be over-notified for the same message or feel spammy. But we want to make that 
as customizable as possible because it's a tool you spend you know many hours in every day you want it to work just like you want it to work so that takes us to like what i wanted to talk about now which is you know the distributed workforce you would have already built for that right you were built almost specifically for companies that are there but now a lot of the workforce has gone you know remote or full, full remote where every single person is now working from home what have you seen on a, on the system side what has that done to slack i mean are fewer messages being sent like what is it's just a volume problem i'm trying to trying to understand like what are the problems you guys are solving for now in order to enable this remote workforce because you know we've talked to a couple of different cio ctos on the show they're not sure that in office is coming back or not, it's not going to come back at the scale it was before right like this is going to be the new way we function yeah so i'm curious on your side like what are you seeing fundamentally pulling the product in a new direction potentially new technology that needs to be implemented or features that need to be implemented to support fully remote everyone working from their house kind of concepts yeah We've definitely seen a change in, in usage since the, the beginning of the pandemic. Some of that is just a whole bunch of new customers, you know, explosion of customers. But I think it's not just the number of customers, but kind of the maturation of usage. So we see the rate at which kind of customers integrate their other tools with Slack has kind of tripled over this period. So people are pulling a lot more of their tools into Slack. We're seeing a lot more voice and video calls, kind of unsurprisingly. But uh, also using, using Slack to send more messages per day, to actively use it for more hours per day. So, you know, replacing a whole bunch of those face-to-face -face interactions. And we recently surveyed a whole, whole bunch of our customers. And during this period, the uh, customers are saying they are 30% more productive due to directly to their use of Slack and that they've cut email by, e internal email by 45%, which is a, a fairly huge amount to have been cut by the shift to remote work, which is surprising to me. And I think it's that, you know, organizations have switched from a combination of in-person conversation, in-person meeting, video meeting, email, and Slack messaging to more concentration on Slack messaging and video meetings. So just reduce the number of communication methods, it seems. So there's more usage, more maturation of usage there. But I think the kind of the core of the product hasn't really changed. Because the while we didn't design it for distributed teams, I think it just maps really well to, to distributed work. Now, back at the beginning of the year, I was definitely a remote work skeptic, not necessarily distributed work skeptic, because we already had, you know, kind of offices around right. North America and a few around the world. Right. It started with three hub HQs. Yeah. Everyone in these environments. Exactly. Um, but still, like people came into, you know, the majority of employees came into offices every day you know, had a permanent desk, had meetings in meeting rooms, you know, all that, all that kind of uh, traditional uh, stuff that seems so nostalgic now. But I was skeptical that organizations at scale could work in a fully distributed work from home kind of model. I think we proved very quickly that almost every organization can, you know, of, of knowledge workers that, that when forced to kind of overnight, everybody could work from home and be effective in an organization. And we've, you know, changed our stance on how we view that going forward for our organization, for sure. So everybody in the wider engineering organization can be fully remote at some point when offices come back, can choose to be fully remote, can come into an office every day, or as the vast majority of people have indicated they want to, come into the office some number of days a week. And so I think, you know, the role of the office is going to change really significantly, and lots of other people have been saying this. But I think the, you know, less a place where people come and have a desk and do their individual work and more of a place where people come and do collaborative work and have, you know, in-person meetings and whiteboarding sessions and 
you know, collaborative work and relationship building that's great in person. So let's talk about some of the things that you envision that, you know, maybe the, whether the product supports today or not, doesn't matter, but you know that distributed workforce, remote workforce, they're going to need more products and services like this. You know, I'm thinking about, you mentioned video chat already. I already know I use video Slack all the time because I'm chatting with someone, can't get it resolved over chat. I'm going to hit the call button. I'm going to call them right there. So I know that that you mentioned already increased usage there. Annotation features so that we can see the same thing and highlight information so that we can very clearly talk about what it is, like a focused item. Instead of me typing a hundred words to try to describe it, I'll just draw an arrow like, hey, what's this? Right? Yeah, yeah. What other features, what are the tools you see for the future that are going to better enable distributed workforces of all types? Yeah, I think there's a, we're really just starting to see this, but I think there's going to be a whole class of new products, which are, which are ones that take advantage of um, remote of a distributed workforce rather than try and replace an in-office process. So I think back at when we switched to work from home, it was really quickly organizations had to deal with how can we take the processes for work that we use in the office and transfer those to online. So it was, how do we take where we had meetings and move them to video-based meetings? You know, how do we take the, where I would like write on a piece of, you know, draw over a, a printout of a, of a design and mark it up and, and take that online, as you said, with, you know, kind of like annotated screen sharing. I think what there's an opportunity for is more tools and services based around things like uh, async work. So how can you, you know, instead of live meetings, things like async video, so tools like Loom, or rather than kind of the um, serendipitous kind of hallway conversations, elevator conversations and socializing, how do you build that into tools to replace that kind of experience, things like Donut. And probably an important one is what do we replace uh, kind of in-person conferences with? You know, how do you take, how do you get the same value that people had going to, going to events and take that online as well? So, you know, platforms for, for that kind of interaction like Hopin and others that allowing you to run those, those events online. So it's an interesting point you made. One of the things that we evaluated at one point for a company was, do we remove, we were trying to think, do we need to remove Slack? And one of the things we talked about is like, can we move to another chat tool? Like some other companies, they have chat tools brought in. We ultimately decided not to because of the ease of use and we could clearly see more communication was happening in the platform. But one of the things that we noticed, which I don't know if it was by intent, it sounds like it might be, I want to get your perspective on this, was people seem to have fun using the product. I know you've got integrations with Jiffy. Like I can pull GIFs whenever I want as if I want to react to something. You obviously introduced emoji very early on where instead of you know, I remember when the first time I left a comment and my peer just left me, you know, a fireball. I was like, what is this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're like, no, that means that's good. I like that idea. I'm like, okay. And then I remember being aging myself. I'm like, I'm never using a fireball to explain anything. But then here I am, 40 year old man hitting fireballs on people when they have good ideas. <laughs> it seems like you, you guys sought an element of fun. Was that with intent or is that more of a byproduct because you guys were already a game and it just happened to be it worked with what people were doing. Yeah, no, it really doesn't have anything to do with games, I think, but it does have to do with kind of our background in general, you know, with both games, but probably more importantly, Flickr was around consumer experiences. And when you're building a more consumer experience, you, you have to have the best uh, kind of the best experience, the best interaction. That's what, you know, that's what makes users like using your product and, and stay using it. And we didn't know how to build software in any other way, to some extent. We're just like, what if we made it so that people love to use it? Turns out that that had generally not been the way that people have built enterprise software in the past. They've been built 
you know, for the CIO, for the VP of IT, you know, or around like the ROI for, you know, using like a sales or marketing tool rather than it doesn't matter if the end users love it because it will work and perform its function and they don't get to choose anyway. And instead, we tried to build something that people would love to use. So I think the first part of that is we tried to make it a great experience that people would enjoy using because that's the way it would spread. But I think the, you know, emoji, adding emoji early on was part of our, also part of our kind of work philosophy that fun is not antithetical to work. Like work, the workplace does not have to be serious all the time. And, you know, we're building Slack at this kind of the start of the rise of messaging in the consumer space. You know, like iMessage, Facebook Messenger, WeChat line, well, WhatsApp, and that people were really starting to get used to that way of communicating with their friends and their family, you know, that had shifted off email and into, into the messaging medium. And so people were used to that. So we tried to take that same experience and move it into the workplace. And I think emoji, you know, and GIFs are a big, a big part of that. People aren't serious all the time. And especially early on with emoji and allowing custom emoji, it allowed people to kind of express themselves as well and put a little bit of their particular team or organizational culture into their communication instead of it all just being dry text. Yeah. I, th- I mean, it ultimately played out in such a huge way because I remember seeing it for the first time thinking, to myself, like I said, I, I'm not going to answer using emoji. I'm not going to use jiffies to explain what I feel, but here I am. I'm doing it now because, <laughs> you know, and then also this goes into some of the questions I want to ask you about developing products and focusing on onboarding, because I felt like that's another thing that you guys did quite well. Uh, the moment I got in my instance, I didn't really know how to use it, but I remember constantly getting prompts like, hey, try this. And I was like, all right, let me try. I remember at first I thought it was kind of annoying, right? But then I started trying it. I was like, ah, oh, this is kind of useful, right? <laughs> is it, I mean, how much effort did you guys put into that onboarding side of things versus like actual core functionality? Or did you just view onboarding as the core function? Like if we can't get people to use this product and have fun with it right out the gate, then it, they'll never find all the enterprise use applications for it. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely a big part of it. That one of the challenges that we had still have as a product is we don't just have to convince somebody to use it. We have to convince somebody to convince their coworkers to use it with them. Right. Because Slack is not, you know, it's not a valuable single player experience. And so we put a lot of focus on that early on for sure. And as you said, you know, it can feel annoying as well, finding the right balance between kind of user education and letting people explore it at their own rate. I, you know, I still get very frustrated when I'm like download a new app on my phone or try a new service on the web. And it's, you know, pops up the like hint cards and you have to click through them. And it's like, I just want to do the thing that I'm here to do. I don't want to read all of your text and understand your tutorial. That balance is really tough. You know, you want to give people the right hints at the right time without feeling like they're on beginner mode. And that's, I think, you know, that, that's a challenge for anybody building any kind of product is what's the right level of in product, in context education. So how would you rate yourself? As a CTO, do you, do you say you lean more towards the product side where you're able to envision how the product should evolve? Or are you more of a solutions guy where it's like, okay, the product team says, hey, I want to develop this thing, where your leadership is more like, hey, this is how we'll solve that? Or do you, do you play a middle? I mean, you know, I don't want to say I'm the, the, we have a whole product team, so that's definitely not right, the, right. the job that I play. <laughs> but I'm definitely, you know, very interested in, you know, the experience of the thing that we're building. Like the whole reason I got into building software to begin with is I love to build things that people use. And so I want to understand how it's going to be used. You know, I'm like, I'm not like an amazing PM by any means, but I care a lot about the, the design and the experience of the product. So, you know, that, that's something, something I focus on, something I care about a lot. 
but then also the infrastructure side is really interesting, especially at scale. Um, you know, so I don't know, both. Is that, a, is that a reasonable answer? You can play both. You can play both. Yeah. How would you describe it? How about your, like, your leadership style? So, and here's the reason why I want to ask this. So for a lot of operators that we've talked to, once you get your business to a certain size, you, there's this inherent, let's say, underlying fear that you don't want to introduce something that causes disruption, right? My favorite example of a company causing massive disruption in its own business was when Netflix announced that they were splitting out their CD line called Quickster. Yeah. I think it took all of like 48 hours for them to be like, we're walking that one back. Like, <laughs> that was a bad idea. <laughs> Everyone was furious canceling their subscriptions. So on one side, you have to protect what you already have, yet you're also your public traded company now. So you got to keep innovating to keep growing the business as well. How would you describe your leadership style when it comes to like new ideas? Are you quick to look for the possibility? Are you, do people, are they scared of you? Like, oh man, I don't want to introduce something to Cal where <laughs> he says, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure people are scared of me, you know, sometimes, <laughs> you know, it, it's definitely a balance because on the one hand, you know, the um, kind of stability, performance, reliability of the service that we provide, you know, the core thing that we have to do every second of every day is keep the, you know, service available for and performant for people. And so that's, you know, an area in which move, you know, changes are slower and we have to be a lot more careful. And then there's the, you know, kind of the product experience side is something where we want to iterate as fast as we can for, especially for our new users or for our smaller company users. And that's balanced with our kind of larger enterprise users who want very predictable change, want to know when things are going to happen as far in advance as possible. That's all understandable. And then I think the kind of the third aspect of that is our internal culture and processes, like how can we, how can we continue to evolve as an organization and how we build software and how we maintain software? Even if we weren't growing, which was still growing fairly significantly as an organization, even then the chance that we had just kind of landed on the perfect way of working and the perfect, you know, the perfect processes, you know, is tiny. There is always room for improvement and probably room for kind of significant improvement too. So I think experimentation in how we work as an organization is something that's important to always keep driving. You know, so something that, we, that we're trying right now, and we'll see if it works, we'll see what impact it has, is an internal program uh, called Maker Time, where we block out three hours in the morning, three days a week, where engineers uh, don't have any meetings. They can just focus on writing code. So not spending any time coordinating with anybody, just write code. We'll see how that goes. And you know, we'll, we'll keep trying different things, not like at a, at a rate where it's unsustainable or it just feels like we're kind of flailing around madly. Mm -hmm. But I think it's too easy to get comfortable in something that kind of works and there's always, always room for improvement. So the other thing that's interesting about your industry is that because I think, and this is just me, my personal interpretation, because on the outside, people view that, on the outside, people view messaging as not a hard thing to build. For some reason, like people are like, oh, you're sending messages, you're sending a, bit, a couple bytes from user A to user B. It's actually quite simple, right? We also know that you're in a highly competitive space, right? You're always compared with Microsoft Teams. You already know that, right? Like people talk about Teams numbers, growth, things like that. So the industry itself is continuously pushing. Do you see chat? Like, because to me, the way you describe chat, right? And I agree with this, which is if you can get people to interplay, like organizations, like let's say I have my business account and let's say I have my, you know, my, my son's ice hockey team, all the dads, if they got, if we started a Slack group, now that I'm in two groups, it makes it really hard to move. How do you see this fight playing out? Is it going to be continue? Like all these chat tools are going to keep emerging. Do you think it's going to consolidate or is it just always going to be 
you and teams and everyone else has got the small things like how do you envision how this the world of organized chat or is that why you guys are always considering new features that take you maybe even away from enterprise i don't know if you ever thought about going away from enterprise because i started noticing people are monetizing slack are you familiar with this where people are literally like you pay me money i'll let you into my private slack group yeah yeah (laughs) and and i think you know that makes a lot of sense that that people are doing that i think in terms of we have people organizing weddings or you know, yeah. uh, junior ice hockey leagues. And I think it works really well for that. We're not interested in the consumer space. So it's not like just for, uh, you know, we're not building it as a social product. It's not meant to be a social network. Right. But for groups of people getting together to organize something, I think that's, you know, that's squarely been our, you know, kind of our target. I think, you know, a really big core difference uh, between, between Slack and what we've been trying to build as a product and Teams is Teams is the evolution of Skype which is the evolution of link. It is the video, you know, video in your conference rooms. When we had conference rooms, now it's, now it's video meetings. And we are very much kind of channels first. We're around the messaging portion mm-hmm. and that at scale as well. You know, Slack is the, is the product that supports channels with hundreds of thousands of people in them, you know, or having hundreds of thousands of channels at your organization. So it's the, you know, we're very much around organized around the channels piece and the platform piece of bring together all of the different bits of software you use, whether that is Office 365, which we do integrate with, you know, if you're using Teams for calls or you're using, uh, you know, kind of your Word docs, that integrates with Slack, but also all of your other systems, you know, regardless whether they're built by Microsoft or built by somebody else. So I think that consumer product feel and the integrating with all of the other tools, you know, is very much core to our, to our strategy. The number of software tools that um, businesses use is only growing, has been growing for a long time and is continuing to grow. And as that kind of software fragmentation continues, I think the the need for somewhere to tie it all together only increases. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. When I first saw our like company's bill of like all the tools we use, I was like, I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what ninety percent of this stuff is. No clue who was using it. Yeah, and I think you know it's um. The stats around it, you know, that like the average mid-sized enterprise is uh, using 1,500 different tools. And even that's a couple of year old stats. It's probably, probably much bigger by now. That just sounds insane. And then I look at the software tools that we use as an organization. We're at like 2,500-ish employees, and we use 700 different tools. And I don't know half of them, <laughs> but then somebody else wouldn't know the other half of them. You know, there's all of these tools that are used by sales, marketing, accounting, finance. Customer service, everyone in between. Yeah. But like office planning, you know, yeah. it's like, here's the seat planner and here's our real estate contract management tool. And, you know, the, I think the really, that really big trend in the software industry over, uh, you know, in the business software industry over the last decade or a couple of decades has been the move from one or two large kind of software mega vendors, you know, the SAPs, the IBMs, to this massive fragmentation, which has been caused by, you know, really the kind of mobile and the SaaS model. Uh, has enabled a whole bunch of companies to exist that wouldn't have been able to exist a decade or two ago because there isn't this big kind of startup capital cost for buying servers. You know, AWS has has made that really significant change. And the SaaS method of delivery just means that it's so much easier for somebody to try something has meant that there are more and more niche tools available that make it easier for people's kind of individual work to get kind of faster, more accurate, higher quality, more reproducible, or just enable kinds of work that wouldn't have been possible without those tools. But as this fragmentation has happened, work is just in many more places. Work used to be, you know, Word docs in email. Right. And now it's uh, records in Salesforce and code in GitHub and this design in Figma. And so I think the need for a place to bring all of that together 
you know, in a, in a messaging platform is only increasing over time. So I got to ask you about this other challenge that you, you, that it's not uniquely yours, but I would say specifically it's a true challenge for Slack. And that is signal to noise ratios, right? So one of the things that people, when they use Slack is if they have all notifications turned on, they haven't adjusted the preferences, they can feel like, wow, there's too much happening. And I'm thinking to myself, I've been in an organization as big as 300 people. Our Slack was pretty wild, but you mentioned thousands, like you mentioned uh, (laughs) tens of thousands of users or more on a single instance. How do you guys envision, is that like a big priority for your organization where you're envisioning, hey, the user experience can never be overwhelmed by notifications because these, it'll be unusable. Like it's, it's, it can become crazy. I wonder to hear your perspective on how you think about that as your customer base grows. Yeah, it's definitely something we think about a lot and we work with all of our, you know, all of our super large customers to understand the right way to set it up, the right way to segment it. You know, it doesn't, uh, while we do have some, you know, some of our large customers have really large channels around like kind of exec AMAs or company announcements. That's not how most teams, if you work at a company with a million employees, you don't work with a million other people. You know, you work with the 10 other people on your team and that's the bulk of your communication. So I think the kind of mental shift that's necessary when switching from kind of inboxes to channels is that there is more information available to you than you are going to read. Many people have already made that shift with their email. It's like most of my email that comes into my inbox, I'm probably not going to read. Yeah. But definitely with Slack, the, you know, the information that's available to me, even within our organization, which is you know, definitely medium-sized, is more than I could ever consume. So this, being able to organize and understand the difference between, I want to read every message in this channel um, every day. I want to catch up with this channel occasionally. And these are channels I would go browse or search into when I wanted to find out something specific. So you know, because it switches the model from push of I decide everything I'm going to send you to pull of you decide what you want to go read. And so, you know, that requires some more sophisticated usage and a more sophisticated setup. And so that's something we work with uh, all of our large customers on, making sure it's configured in such a way that people have access to information that they need, but aren't overwhelmed by it. So that, that makes me wonder, is Slack consulting an actual industry now? where people are making money consulting other companies on how do you install Slack because it exists for all the other, you know, like there's Salesforce consultants everywhere. Absolutely. That help you update your Salesforce. Is Slack consulting going to be a new field? Uh, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, anytime a software tool gets widely adopted in the enterprise, I integrate Slack with my strange old on-prem systems or my, the custom things that I've built. You know, and today we have the Slack platform, which we talked about earlier, includes, you know, like 2,300 different apps out of the box. But we have... 800,000 active developers on the platform, nearly all inside our customer companies or at SIs who are integrating Slack with their on-prem systems, their custom software, building custom workflows inside those companies. So it's a huge amount of software development happens around Slack. Insane problems to solve, right? Yeah. You guys are after it. So we're at the time of the show where it's time for our lightning round. I'm going to read a little thing. Uh, The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. All right, Cal, this is where we want to learn a little bit more about you away from work. All right, you ready? Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So Slack was born out of a video game. I'm assuming you're a gamer. What's your favorite game? Oh, right now, uh, probably Minecraft still a decade in because I play it with my six-year-old son. So a lot of fun. Yeah, my kids play Minecraft as well, the amount of worlds and stuff. I can't say I understand what's going on, but they keep telling me they can build worlds. And I was like, all right. (laughs) 
<laughs> have you built your own custom world like you and your son like oh yeah you guys playing? yeah that's like a every night thing right now during during the pandemic so a lot of minecraft <laughs> you're also known as an avid listener of audiobooks any particular favorite audiobooks i listen to a lot of um a lot of bad to mediocre sci-fi and you know i listen to a lot of audiobooks it used to be on my commute to work because i'd walk to and from the office but i haven't had that commute in a while so it's really kind of eaten into my uh eaten into my listening time but what's a good book i've read in the last little while oh i'll i'll pick i'll pick on the more business side um monetizing innovation is a really interesting book that talks around uh about how to price things you're selling but also how to build to a price um strongly recommend it there you go for anyone looking for advice on how to price their goods monetizing innovation recommendation cal henderson all right what is a hobby or habit you've now picked up besides Minecraft worlds? Can't yep. you already said that? What's a new hobby, hobby or habit that you've picked up during the pandemic? I think because I've gotten like lost my source of uh, kind of exercise with uh, no longer walking to work, it's been uh, trying to walk around the city more. I live in San Francisco Bay Area, um, and I'm trying to get out every day and walk uh, a few miles to get some exercise. So otherwise. You know, the commute from my bedroom to my office is just not very far anymore. And so exercise, I think, is, is really important in giving yourself kind of mental space as well. Have you made the walk from the base to the top of Coit Tower? Uh, yes, but not in the lot, not this year, but I certainly have a few times. That's a, that's a walk. That's a walk. <laughs> What's your favorite aspect of remote work? I think the ability to have more flexible hours, um, you know, because I'm not constrained by the commute into the office anymore, I can uh, transition into and out of work more easily, you know, and get, get work done when I need to focus better. Awesome. And if you weren't in software development, what would you be doing? Oh, that's, that's tough because I've, you know, wanted to be a software engineer since, since I was a kid, essentially. And I don't know, something software adjacent. So doing software in some other role, I guess. I just love making stuff um, for, people to, to, for people to use. So something creative, probably. There you go. Cal. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries, sharing everything around the start, the build, and the future of Slack and remote messaging as a place in center point for work. Cal, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for joining us, everyone. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.